This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Father, we invite you, Spirit, we invite you to speak loudly, boldly, clearly, so that we might hear and be different. It's in the name of King Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, welcome to South. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us this morning. Um, Sort of funny, I can only assume that was Aaron singing behind there. Um, Sort of like the Wizard of Oz (laughs) speaking truth to us. Um, Yeah, workflow may not be our um, thing we're best at, but um, we're going to have a little bit of a different morning together. We're going to enter into um, a story um, through the book of Acts. It's interesting, as I was studying this passage that we're going to be looking at today, uh, I had a, a memory from when I was a college pastor leading a group of college students down into the mountains of Mexico sort of come back to me. Uh, we were going to work with an indigenous people group down in southern Mexico um, in the little tiny mountain village of Sequicho. Will you say that with me? Sequicho, right, yeah, I'm sure we all said it wrong, so um, the Lord knows. But um, So we were in this little village of Sequicho, and uh, we happened to be there on the day, the one day of the year that their saint came to town. By their saint came to town, I mean that men from the village went to the town nearby, and they got um, Santiago Apostol and brought them into the little village of Sequicho. They proceeded to have um, Santiago mounted on this white horse, and they paraded him into the center of this little village. And Santiago started to battle the other competing lowercase g gods for prominence in his own town. And so imagine, if you will, um, a number of people, probably a few hundred people gathered around in this town square, Santiago paraded in by other people on his white horse, and competing gods start to fight against him in the town square. Now, because this is Santiago's town, he was victorious, and the other lowercase g gods didn't look quite as ornate and done up as Santiago, but, but they were, I'm looking decent, were lit on fire in the middle of this town center and burned in a declaration that Santiago is our God. Now, I have about 20 college students with me. They're going, so Santiago, that's um, the, the Spanish translation, or the Spanish word for, for James, right? So this is um, James, as in the disciple, <laughs> Right, right. This is James as in the disciple. And they proceeded to walk him down Main Street to this amphitheater where they had this whole night long celebration, food, dancing, drinks, celebrating this God. And I started to think, what, what's life like for these folks? What, what's life like? Because they, they live in this story. They live in this story where every year this God, quote unquote, this saint comes and they bow down quite literally and, and worship him. I, I wonder, I started to wrestle with what is their story, their, their narrative, if you will, of what God is like? How does that shape their life? 
I'll, I'm going to use the word story this morning, um, but, but that's what I mean. I mean narrative. I mean, you can think, um, if, if you like the world, word worldview better, you can think worldview, but, but it's, a, it's a story that they find themselves in. And wouldn't it be interesting if the Bible sort of showed us what it looks like to, to enter into these different worldviews, these different narratives, these different stories that people live in. And in many ways, that's what the book of Acts is like. It shows us how to enter into um, stories like in the village of Sequicho, where they have this um, synchronistic view of what it looks like to worship God. And the book of Acts, uh, the second half that we're in, it follows the apostle Paul as he starts to enter into these different stories. And it's interesting because as Paul leaves um, Antioch over there on the east side of the Mediterranean and he travels to Cyprus and then he travels back up, um, he eventually ends up in the land, the, the, the area, the region of Galatia. And in that region, he starts to preach, he starts to teach, and he starts to enter into stories, different stories, and unpack what the one true God is really like from inside of stories that people find themselves in. And so as many people as there are in this room, we have these different narratives that we think of when we think of God. We have these different convictions, these different beliefs. And and for many of us, it's centered around what we read about in scripture. But for some of us, maybe that's not true this morning. And I want to show you the way that God sort of condescends and through his people enters into the stories that people find themselves living. Acts chapter 13. If you have a Bible, will you turn there with me? Acts chapter 13. Paul has just had um, a pretty miraculous interaction with a magician. And then he goes to the land of Antioch and Pisidia. So not to be confused with the other Antioch, Okay. Two Antiochs in the story of the book of Acts. One of them is up here. This is where Paul leaves from. And the other is up in the sort of um, central part of the Mediterranean. Just go directly north and you find the Antioch we're going to be reading about this morning. Chapter 13, starting in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screens as well. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos And they came to Perga in in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, so this is the day that the Jewish people would worship Yahweh. They went into the synagogue and sat down. No, this, um, if you are um, teaching in the synagogue on this day, this is definitely a prominent entrance, most likely by the apostle Saul and his friend Barnabas. They're noticed. Listen to the way the story goes on. And after reading from the law and the prophets, so um, uh, this is the story that these people are going to find themselves in. The law and the prophets. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul needs no large opening to preach the gospel. What's that? See, this is the way most preachers are. I mean, you give us an inch, we'll take a yard, right? If you have a word of encouragement for us, Saul, Paul, would you stand up and would you give it? Verse 16, men of Israel, you who fear God, he says, listen up. Here's what Paul's going to do. Paul is going to enter into this age-old story of Judaism, 
He's going to enter into the people who worship the one true God in Yahweh and have for generations and generations. And he's going to start speaking into their story. You people who fear God, he says. Let's chat. People of um, the law, the law, and the prophets. Let's, let's have a talk, he says. Let's have a talk. Verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their time in the land of Egypt. So here's where he's starting. He's starting, okay, remember when you as a people were in slavery. Remember when you were in Egypt. He's going to go on and he's going to say, and then remember when God graciously, sovereignly led you out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And then remember from the wilderness when he led you into the promised land. Now, this is the story that Paul grows up in. So, so like a parachute dropping into the middle of a football field, he is just, he's, he's at home. He's going, I, I can tell this story. I can interact with this story. He goes on in the next verses to talk about the way that God graciously, lovingly leads these people from Egypt to the wilderness where he graciously provides for them for 40 years into the promised land where they live and they kick out everybody else in there. It takes about 450 years, but eventually they, they do it or better said, God does it. And then he gives them judges Kings, of whom King David is the most prominent. And then he says, in verse 23, of this man, King David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. And his name is Jesus. Jesus. Right? So, so we know the story. Right? This is good news for us. Um, so he leads us up to Jesus. And he says, all right, everything that you believed, everything that you, your hope centered on was leading up to this one man, this offspring of God. His name is King Jesus. This is a story that they knew well. This is a story Paul knows well. This is a story that he enters into with some ease. And he goes on to say, brothers, verse 26, sons of the family of Abraham and to those among you who fear God, this message of salvation has been sent. So here's what we start to see. This story All along pointed to Jesus. It was all about Jesus. And it was an offer, an invitation. And its culmination was an invitation to the story of God that he was telling through the person and work of Jesus. 
And he says this, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets. So this is how their story is informed. It's informed by the law and the prophets, remember. But here's what Paul's gonna say. This is your story, and this is where it was leading, but, but you missed it a little bit. You missed it. Which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Interesting. He says, your, your, your story, you actually lived into the story that God was telling by completely missing the story you lived in. You missed it so bad that you killed your Messiah. Skip down with me to verse 30. It says this, but God, but God raised him from the dead. So he steps into the story, he unpacks it, he says, listen, all of this was leading up to Jesus and you missed it, you killed him. But here's what God did. God was so gracious and so good that he raised him from the dead and this Jesus appeared to many. Verse 32, and we bring you good news. Literally, we bring you gospel, that's what he says. We bring you gospel that God who promised to the fathers has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. This word um, fulfilled is sort of interesting. It literally means to, to fill up. As though the law and the prophets, they, they painted for the Israelites this outline, this, this picture of, um, and, and forgive me, I'm a terrible artist, but here's what they did. They painted this picture of, um, don't laugh, okay? Here's sort of what God is like. Sorry, Lord, please don't strike me dead. Um, here's what God is like. They painted this picture, this outline. That what, they, what Paul says is in Jesus, in his life, death, burial, and especially in his resurrection, what God did is he stepped in and he sort of took this picture that they believed and they filled it in. See, they had this form, but it lacked the substance of all that God wanted to give them. In the book of Colossians, we see this wonderful um, description of the same idea. Can you guys help me out and go to the Colossians slide? Uh, the book of Colossians, Paul, who's giving this same teaching, describes the Old Testament, the festivals, and the feasts as a shadow. He says, all right, the story you're living in, it has the shape, it has the form, but it, it lacks the substance. It lacks the substance. So in verse 38, listen to what Paul says. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, this Jesus, who God raised from the dead, everyone who believes is freed from everything you couldn't be freed from under the law of Moses. 
So here's what he says. Here's what he says. The story you're living is a good story. It's a true story, but it's not the complete story because all of this law and the prophets, they could get you to the shadow of what God was like, but the reality is seen in Jesus. And in Jesus, you're freed from everything. There's an R in free. You're free from everything you couldn't be freed from under the law of Moses. Now this, friends is a beautiful entering into and unpacking of what God has done in and through the nation of Israel for millennia. Paul steps into it and he goes, let me point you to your Messiah. Bad news is you killed him. Good news is God raised him. And the beautiful invitation is come to him, be saved. He's the resurrection, be forgiven and find freedom that the law in no way, shape or form could have ever provided for you. What a great story. What a, what a wonderful God narrative to live in. And see, some of us, we've been born into this story in a sense. Uh, probably not a lot of us are ethnically Jewish, but we've been around church long enough. We've been around God long enough. We've been around the scriptures long enough. And really, the scriptures are what informed this story. That we start to think, okay, this is up until here, okay? We're just talking about the story of the law and the prophets. This is the only story that God enters into. So wouldn't it be interesting if the Apostle Paul, somewhere along his journey, encountered somebody that didn't grow up here, encountered somebody that didn't have a a lot of this backstory, that many of us now, by the grace of God, know because we get this picture of what God is like, but, but wouldn't it be interesting because some of you are going, hey, Ryan, I wasn't born on a pew like you. Right, and, and, I, and I don't understand all the sort of intricacies of the Old Testament, this idea that, that we had like um, e- Egyptian wilderness and promised land and judges and kings and somehow in the Law and the Prophets that all led us up to the point of Jesus. Well, how would Paul tell this story to a group of people that had no clue who these characters and what this narrative was like? I'm glad you asked that. It's a great question. Acts chapter 14, turn there with me. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. And he's going to enter into a narrative about what God is like that's very different from this story that the Israelites found themselves in. Verse 8, we're going to move just east to Lystra. You can see it up on the map here. Um, Lystra is sort of Um, a podunk little backwoods type of village in the middle of the region of Galatia. Now, just so we're all clear, Paul wrote a little letter to this region. It was the epistle of Galatians. Right, 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 right. It's important. We'll come back to that. Okay. Now, at Lystra, which is in Galatia, verse 8 of chapter 14, there's a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he'd never walk. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing he had faith to be well, to be made well, to be healed, he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and he began walking. Now, this, these are a people 
who may or may not have ever heard this story about the Yahweh God, the God who is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And so how do Paul and Barnabas enter into a story that's foreign to their own? They look around, they see need, and they act with compassion. That's what they do. Interesting, they didn't go in with their tract of, um, can we tell you what God is like? Egypt, wilderness, promised land. If you believe these things, then you can enter into this story. No, they actually enter into the story that people are living. Listen. Listen. This is going to be up on the screen. Verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, so these are, this is Greek mythology, um, unless you had a bad English teacher in high school, you've probably read it, right? And forgotten it, Okay? So, so they're involved in this story. This is a different story than Egypt and wilderness and promised land and judges and kings. This is Zeus and Hermes and the other 10 other guests, not as prevalent gods in between, but, but you sort of know about them as you've studied mythology. There's 12 total um, that are the prominent gods, but there's a whole pantheon of gods that these people believed in. The 12 were sort of based at Mount Olympus. Zeus was the god of the gods. Hermes, as you've read here, was the messenger of the gods. He was the messenger of the gods in the words that he spoke, but he was also the messenger of the gods in that he would carry people to whatever their afterlife destination might be like. And so they look at Paul and they go, um, you're Hermes. And they look at Barnabas and they go, you're, you're like Zeus. Um, most commentaries say it's just because he was a little bit older. Okay. So they look at Barnabas and say, you're like Zeus. And the priest is all over it. Notice. Let's not let this opportunity pass us by. They may or may not have read in the poet um, Opin about Zeus and Hermes. It was, it was a common myth in the day where Zeus and Hermes came to a town not all that far from Lystra, and they came and they started to interact with the people there. They went to a thousand houses looking for somebody who would be hospitable, hospitable to them, found no one, went to this little couple who had this um, straw shack in the middle of nowhere. They welcomed them in. And Zeus and Hermes invited them to a hill overlooking the city where they by flood destroyed everything else and allowed them to rule. So the fact that they are all over wanting to sacrifice and welcome them and make sure that they know this is a safe place if you are a lowercase g God, very important, very important. Paul enters into the story. Listen to what he says. But when the apostles, verse 14, oops, um, there's Zeus, 
There's Hermes. You may wonder why um, I didn't give a full body shot, and, and it's because evidently the gods did not wear a lot of clothes, okay? <laughs> so that could have gotten a bit awkward, okay? Verse 14. And when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed into the crowds crying out. This is, an, this is a declaration. You are about to commit blasphemy. Stop the train. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to the living God. So here's what we're starting to see, okay? He's starting to complete their story too. Just like he took the story of Israel and said, let's, let's bring this along to its culmination. He's going he's gonna to start to do the same thing with this pagan story. Turn to this living God. Turn from the idols, from the vain things to this living God. That, that word vain is a really interesting word in the Greek. Some of your translations may have the word worthless there. Others might have the word empty. Empty is a great translation for this word. Um, Turn from these empty things, these things that have this like shape, the, the, the form, but they don't carry substance. Interesting. Um, it's sort of like speaking fulfillment in a sense, in, in the sense that fulfillment fills up what's lacking, he says, hey, turn. Turn from the emptiness of these gods that you have to fear and these gods that you have to appease and the gods that you have to always wonder, are you on their good side or on their bad side? And are they having a good day or are they having a bad day? Did they get their coffee in the morning or not? Turn from that to the living God. Interesting. Notice their declaration, the Lyconian people. The God's have become men. So, let me ask you a question that we're sort of uncomfortable with. I'll get that on the table. That, I'm okay with that. How far off are they really? I mean, the gods, lowercase g, plural, become men. Low, uh, plural. Off, for sure. They are off. But the fact of the matter is, friends, if you read through the New Testament, God, uppercase G, singular, became a man. And so Paul, here's what Paul's gonna do. He's gonna enter into their story. And he's gonna start to bring them along. He's gonna take them by the hand and say, from inside of your story, allow me to take you to the ultimate story that God is telling in Jesus Christ. G.K. Chesterton, in 1939, he gave this lecture. It was called On Fairy Stories, um, or Fairy Tales. And he made this point. It was this, um, I think, sort of beautiful point. And he started to talk about the way that in every single culture, in all time, people are obsessed with these fairy tales, with these myths, if you will. And he identified four things 
that are prevalent in every single myth and every sort of fairy story as he talked about it. And here's the things that he identified. One is there's this desire to escape time and death. Second, there's a desire to communicate with inanimate objects. I don't know where that fits into this one, but we'll just, we'll go with it. Um, Third, is there is a desire for a love that heals everything that you never have to lose. Fourth, there's a desire for good to triumph over evil. Um, Chesterton and, and Lewis, to a certain, C.S. Lewis, to a certain extent, they go on to affirm that the reason that in all of these myths and all of these legends and all of their, their falsehood, there's these underlying truths that sort of um, undergird them all. The reason that that's there is because he suggests that there's this like residue of ultimate reality, that they're all in some way, shape, or form telling the story. That God would become a man. That he would come and he would redeem and he would save and he would give life and he would bring forgiveness and he would bring freedom. And this God is the living God. So Paul doesn't start with, let me tell you everything that you have wrong. He says, let me tell you what you have empty and let me fill it up for you. Verse 15. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain, worthless, or empty things to a living God who made heaven and who made earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he says, verse 16, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. So all of these nations, other than the nation of Israel, I think is what Paul is suggesting here, the, the, the ethnos, the Gentiles, he allows them all to walk in and go their own way. Yet, verse 17, and this is awesome. Yet, he did not leave them without witness. So he said, you could go your own way, but in the same way that God gave the law and the prophets and the scriptures to the nation of Israel, what Paul's going to suggest is, hey, this story God has spoken into also. So maybe the story's bigger than we think. Hold that thought for a second. He did so by giving you rain from heaven, seasons, food, and satisfaction. Rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfactions in your in your heart, food. And gladness. See, sometimes as followers of Jesus, we get a little bit condescending to people that are outside of our camp. And so the invitation becomes I know your life is terrible. Step over onto this side. It's not the way that Paul starts at all. In fact, the apologetic he uses, I think in some ways we get a little bit uncomfortable with. We might even like want to burn him at the stake and call him a heretic and use his own letters to crucify him. Because here's what he does. He enters into the story that they live in. And he starts to say, you've seen God. You've experienced God. In joy, in gladness, 
In rain, when you stood outside and you looked up at the rain, it was his gracious, loving provision to your life. Sure, it's different than the shadows that led you to Jesus. It's, it's raindrops. But you've experienced this God. He's that good. The whole thing is his story. I like to consider it the biggest, smallest story you've ever heard. Did you know? Hey, will you look up at me for just a second? There's not a person that you're going to meet that hasn't had that internal angst of, I think that maybe God is reaching out to me. But here's what we've done. Paul, in in this masterful way, and you're going to see it again in Acts chapter 17. We'll unpack it more then. In this masterful way, he uses resources that are all around him for the sake and the name of Jesus that I think we would shy away from. His evangelistic resources are vast, I mean, it's like, go, go up and look at the sky um, and, and sit back with, with friends and family and enjoy great food. And you've, you've experienced a touch of the goodness of this creator God. So, so maybe, maybe we don't need to take people to very average, and that's generous, just my opinion. But the mic's attached to my face, Okay. Very average Christian movies to talk about Jesus. Like, like maybe, maybe if, if Paul says, I can talk about Jesus through talking about the rain that comes from heaven. Maybe we don't need to have these like little camps where this is, this is Christian music and these are Christian movies and these are Christ, this is Christian literature and then there's other stuff and some of it's like really good, but we can't use it because it's not in our camp. Paul goes, I don't know these camps that you speak of because it's all God's story and all truth is God's truth. And some of it's a outline and some of it's a shadow and some of it's raindrops, but it all points to the same God. And he masterfully, beautifully enters in to their story. Notice, if you will. And if you have your own Bible, I'll invite you to just either look at this, circle this. It's fascinating. To the Jewish people, to the Jewish story, he says, let me tell you good news. And the good news to the Jewish people is that, hey, everything you hoped for, everything in the story that you've lived into, this narrative about what God is like, has met its fulfillment in Jesus. He raised from the dead. It was God's declaration, his stamp. This is what I'm doing. This is where I'm leading. Salvation, resurrection, forgiveness, and freedom are here in a way you never could have experienced them before. To the pagan, he says, we bring you good news. And what does not follow is, let me tell you about Israel. Really interesting. Because I got to be honest with you, I wrestle with that a little bit. Here's what follows. We bring you good news. This God is so big. You already know him. He's He's an old friend. Let me introduce you to him. He's the God that gives rain. He's the God that brings seasons. 
He's the God that you experience as you sit around your table with your friends and your family and go, man, life is good. It's interesting. He just beautifully, graciously starts where people are at. And he takes them by the hand and he leads them ultimately to Jesus. So some questions for us. How do we do the same thing? I think the call from Acts chapter 14, at least, to the church is, can we be a little bit more creative, church? Can we find ways to enter into the stories that people next door live in? And not just say you have to get into this story. But what if we entered into yours? And what if we sort of showed you that, that raindrops and shadows both point to this great creator, benevolent God? What if we believed that this longing that people have inside of them to encounter the living God, that God had already crossed paths with them? That's what Paul says. Hey, you've already crossed paths with the longing of your heart. I wrestled with this passage because I, I thought, well, Paul, you leave, you, you stop short. There's no mention of Jesus here. Come on, Paul. Um, what we have to recognize about the book of Acts is that Luke is taking a ton of information and he's synthesizing it down for us intentionally, led by the Holy Spirit, to give us a look at the way that the early church started. But this isn't the end of the story with the apostle Paul and the church eventually, at Galatia. Listen to the way that he writes to this church in Galatians chapter one, verses three through five. He says, grace and peace to you. You same people that at one point wanted to um, bow down to me, sacrifice to me. You had the oxen, you had the garlands ready. Zeus and Hermes were your story. You lived into, he says, grace and peace to you from God, our father and the Lord who? Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, delivering us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be all glory forever and ever. Amen. And so here's what Paul beautifully, graciously does. He starts in their story. He points out things that are both empty and lacking in an offensive way to them. And he builds bridges to things that point to the reality of what's found in Jesus, the redemption from our great God. And he takes him by the hand and he says, my conviction is that you've met this God at some point along the way. My conviction is that the longings of your soul are met in the one, Jesus Christ. Let me introduce you to him. What a wonderful invitation, friends. What a beautiful, beautiful story to live into. I said it's the biggest, smallest story you've ever heard. Because here's what we have. It's the biggest in the sense that God can even 
show himself in situations and cultures as pagan as bowing down to Zeus and Hermes in the rain, in food, in gladness, in joy, and satisfaction. This God even pokes through there. But in every story of all time, I'm not saying that all paths lead to God. Please hear me. This is important. All paths don't lead to God. But God meets people on every path. Okay? And it's the biggest story because he does that. And it's the smallest story because his goal in every single one of them is let me lead you to Jesus. And so, for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been gathering around this table to remember, to remember that God's taken a bunch of ragtag individuals and made them into a community of faith. It's the reason we gather around a proverbial table. To remember that regardless of what story we started on, that we find our life, our joy, our freedom, our salvation, our resurrection in the one living God whose name is Jesus. And so for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus gather around this table and they remember this gracious, good God who became a man. Walked to the hill of Calvary, spread his arms, and died for people like you and me that we might know what it means to really, truly live. The table is open to any who are followers of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, may I invite you to consider that maybe, just maybe, today is one of those days where God intersects whatever story you're living. And anytime he intersects your story, he longs to grab you by the hand and take you to his cross to meet his son, to know his love, and to live in his kingdom. That's what we celebrate. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you, you don't come. This table is for those who declare Jesus as Lord and who long to live in his kingdom. Um, but, but if you want to put your faith and hope and trust in him this morning, you are welcome here. We invite you as you feel led to come up to take um, a piece of bread and a juice. Uh, you can take the bread whenever you'd like. It's symbolic of the reality that you have a relationship with Jesus. Would you leave the cup, though, so that we can together celebrate the cup of his new covenant. Would you pray with me? This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.